welcome to the Germ to Jar Cannabis Cultivation Podcast, the show where we talk about everything related to cannabis cultivation and help to cultivate cultivators. I'm your host, AJ Tobian, and this is episode four. This show is being recorded on March 4th, and as I have been, I'm gonna show I'm gonna start the show with a garden update. The perpetual nature of my grow means that at any given time there are crops. Uh, or what I call grow runs at different stages of life. So as I continue this segment, I will always start at the run that is furthest along or closest to harvest and work my way back from there. My grow run 14 is on day 50 of flower. And since this monocrop run of White Widow is a phenol, I've, uh, I've run many times before, I know that it finishes at nine weeks or 63 days, so we're in the home stretch. I've been really happy with most of this run, and I say most because I ran into a hiccup just over a week ago when I was doing my daily crop scouting. As I was going through all the plants, at the back of the second tent, I found fan leaves on the plant that looked to have spider mite damage. When you've seen it before, then you know it's quite, you know when you've seen it because it's quite distinctive. So I turned off the air circulation fans, which I always do if I feel I found an issue because when you investigate potential problems, you will likely be jostling leaves and possibly the whole plant. This jostling could dislodge bugs or cause pathogen spores to become airborne. And if this happens, and there's air circulation, the air circulation becomes your enemy because it's the best and quickest way for the problem to spread to other plants and worse throughout your grow. When I look closer and specifically on the underside of the damaged leaves, as, as I guess, there was a small population of red spider mites. Although it's never a good feeling to encounter problems like that, it's really no need to panic. It will require you though to take a quick action if you don't want the issue to get worse. Fortunately, I caught this relatively early where the issue appeared to only have spread to a few fan leaves on a couple of plants. I'm not going to dive deep into the details of what I did or how you could address a similar problem because that is literally several episodes worth of info. What I can say is that this late into flower, my only goal was to con- it was containment and control of the population. So I immediately removed all the leaves that I found any visible populations on and since then have proceeded to defoliate fan leaves daily to prevent any further spread or outbreak. This is something I would be doing at harvest anyways and the slight stress... I'm putting on the plants this late in the flower is acceptable given the alternative, which is that if left unchecked, in as little as two weeks, these little buggers could literally be covering entire plants and flowers. It seems to be well under control, but I'm monitoring monitoring it daily. And should there be a further outbreak that I feel is difficult to contain, I would just go ahead and harvest early as these girls are mature enough to provide potent flower, and decent yield. The next run in line is my phenol hunt in the 2x4 Mars Hydro tent under a Mars Hydro SP250 LED grow light, currently the only LED grow light in my garden. This run is on day 6 of flower and going great. 
This is a fun run where there are 16 plants and five different cultivars in the two by four tent uh, growing for the entire run in solo cups. I've posted pics and details about this across social media and although most support it, there are a number of folks who expect the experiment to fail. But, you know, only time will tell. All I can say is right now it's doing great with no current issues. I did have some thrift issues in, uh, with this run in veg, but treated for that and it's virtually eliminated. I say virtually because I do spot the odd leaf damage uh, indicative to, to, to thrips, but have not visibly seen any populations to speak of. Next in the perpetual grow is a pheno hunt run of a cultivar called Black Dosi Fire by Jordan of the Islands Genetics, also known as Joti, which is a Canadian breeder. This run was also made possible by my friends at Sprout Free Canada. It's a pheno hunt a long time coming. This run is 26 days in the veg, has I believe 17 or 18 plants from four different phenotypes and have been topped a couple of times during their time in the veg. The photo period will be changing to 12-12 in a couple of days, which would enter this run into the transition period uh, into flower, which for me is the first week under the 12-12 light cycle. The last run I currently have going is Grow Run 15, which is the final cuts I took from the solo cup pheno hunt before they went in the flower. I took 37 cuts and except for one cut that I discarded yesterday because it was starting not to look healthy and another that I'm watching and may call tomorrow depending on how it looks, they're all healthy and most are already shooting roots. I try to get ahead any cuts that don't look healthy simply because in case there's an issue with it that is pathogenic that could spread to the other cuts obviously i have no intention of losing all the cuts so uh and another tactic is i do take more cuts than i need uh, for any of the runs this run will replace the black dosi fire pheno hunt in the veg tent when those are moved to one of the flower tents after i clean and sterilize it this week the last thing i addressed in my garden this week was my mother room this room was completely neglected by me. I know, the worst plants in the garden to neglect. The reason for that neglect I discussed in detail on my YouTube channel, so I won't rehash it here. But all the plants really needed some TLC. I finally got that done this past week. I discarded a few mothers of cultivars I no longer was going to run and have trimmed back the existing mothers to literally two or five growths two to five growths each because they had experienced pest damage and a couple of them had PM. So I completely stripped them have been nursing, and have been nursing them back to health. As I recover from the mass purge of plant matter, I will be treating them to ensure that they are in top health before I decide to take any cuts from them. Truth be told, there are a couple that I will not be nursing back to full health. What I will do is I'll simply grow them out enough to take three or four cuts from them, discard the existing mother, root those cuts, and keep those as new moms. So there you have it, a pretty thorough garden update for podcast. As always, if you want to visually see all that I've talked about, visit my YouTube channel 
at CanCanGrow, C-A-N-C-A-N-N-G-R-O-W, to see all my video grow journals detailing pretty much everything I do in my garden. Now let's get into the listener Q&A, which I'm excited to jump into this week because there are quite a few to discuss. The first was sent to me on Instagram to my personal CanCanGrow Instagram account. It was sent by at scratch810. And it goes, I seen your YouTube video on the powdery mildew ozone generator. Recently, I took in a clone that previously had PM. I'm fighting it now week five of flower. I've been growing a little over 10 years now, never had PM. I guess my question is, is it systemic? If it is, as I think it is from friends dealing with it, I'm going to flower everything and sterilize and crack seeds. Any info is a blessing. So thanks for tuning into my channel, and I hope you enjoy the content. To answer your question, PM is not a systemic pathogen. When a PM, when PM takes hold of, a, of plant matter, matter, it does penetrate the cell wall with a taproot called a hostorium, which is its primary feeding mechanism. That historium then continues to sprout other tap roots into neighboring cells, creating a mycelium network beneath the outer plant membrane. It spreads like this for several days before it starts sprouting the outer spores that you can see and are the usual telltale signs that the plant has PM. It is because of this cell wall pe penetration that people sometimes get the idea that PM is a system uh, is a is, ugh, is systemic but it does not spread or infect the entire plant vascularly it is spread to other parts of the plant and to neighboring plants via the outer spores we just mentioned that become airborne there are many uh, effective ways that you can battle PM and properly utilizing an ozone generator to sterilize your garden is one of those ways I will be doing an entirely separate episode on tackling PM as this as it's a topic I'm pretty passionate about. What I will say now is that if you decide to use an ozone generator, although it's effective, you must be careful as it can be harmful to people. I only ever run my ozone generators when I'm not in the garden and make sure that they are, they are shut off a minimum of an uh, of an hour prior to entering the room to ensure the ozone in the air has dissipated. Ozone is heavier than regular air, so if you're running it in your, in your basement it, and you're not in the basement, it's fine because it will not impact the floors above. I run it in the ambient area and lung room of my garden and not in the actual grow tents, and I can tell you they have no ill effects on the plants. That, of course, will depend on how powerful the ozone generator you are using is. I can tell you that I have run tests running my ozone generators in one of the tents for several hours with plants, and the plants did not die. Again, whether this applies to your situation will depend on the strength of your ozone generator because at high enough PPM levels of ozone in the air, plants will die. I will discuss this and a whole slew of other preventative measures and treatments for a grow infected with PM in a future episode. 
So the next question was also sent to me through Instagram. Uh, again, once again at CanCanGrow. It was sent by at Judge Dread underscore six, and it goes, "Hey CanCan, I enjoyed your first couple of podcasts, and I am looking forward to more to come. As for a question uh, slash topic, I would really be interested in in hearing or learning about pruning." I've done it on my outside grows and have seen a great improvement with yield, but never indoors on a schedule. For fun, this year's I decided to bring my grow inside and signed up for Cocoa for Cannabis's New Year's Grow Challenge. Uh, good job. I have never grown inside before, so I'm not sure when is the best time to prune. I just flipped to 1212 lighting and not sure if I should still prune or just let the plant do its thing. If possible, could you give me the Coles notes on pruning via message and discuss it in full on one of your podcasts? If you're too busy, I totally understand. No worries. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Well, thanks for sending me your question and congrats on participating in the Coco for Cannabis New Year's Grow Challenge. Um, Dr. Coco and the whole community at Coco for Cannabis do great things for their members and the cannabis community as a whole. So when you say pruning, I'm going to assume you're referring to the removal of leaf matter or what many refer to as defoliation and not so much the process of lollipopping, which is the removal and quote-unquote cleaning up of all growth in the lower one-third to lower one-half area area of the plant. I'm in the camp that believes, based on plant science, that leaves play a huge role in the growth and production of the plant as they are a dominant source of, uh, or the dominant source of photosynthesis in the plant, and as such are a benefit to plant yield remaining uh remaining on the plant as opposed to being removed. But with that said, I also support the practice of strategic defoliation to aid in environment control and as a way to prevent pest and pathogen issues. I feel strategic defoliation almost, is almost unavoidable in, and this is a significant benefit in most home growth setups because in home grows, generally, they have difficulty uh, a difficult time dialing in what uh, you know a perfect environment. When properly applied, defoliation can help to increase airflow through the canopy. It can help light penetration, particularly for less intense light fixtures, remove plant matter where pests and pathogens can proliferate, and lessen transpiration to help lower excessive RH. These are just some of the sound reasons to strategically defoliate your plants. Some tips when defoliating, err on the side of less versus more, because you can always remove more leaves if necessary, but you can't put them back if you've removed too much. Any amount of defoliation is a stressful event for plants that will take time to recover from, although healthy plants do seem to take it in stride. So I found it best to just do one or two major defoliation events as opposed to sc scattered defoliation here and there. Specific to your question, I find that a week before the photo period switched to 12-12 and after week three or four in flower seem to be the best times to do any significant defoliation. 
in most cultivars, plants will no longer produce new leaf growth after week six of flower. By not doing any significant defoliation after week four max, you give yourself a buffer to allow a little more vegetative growth after the defoliation so the plant still has adequate leaf matter to finish the flower cycle strong. Please note that although I highlight two specific periods to do any significant defoliation, that does not mean that you can't or shouldn't remove leaves throughout the run that should be removed. For example, dead or dying leaves, damaged leaves, etc. because those leaves are potential vectors for pest and pathogen infections. Next question, also sent to me on Instagram at CanCanGrow, was sent by at Bud Hayes Organics, and it, and, it go, uh, and it goes as follows. Coming from a fellow cannabis information whore loving the makings of your show will be a cons constant listener. Being an organic grower, I'm very interested in blue mats at the moment. I would love a getting to know blue mat show. I would be fine with you using my Insta handle and would be keen on taking part in any way in your show. Thanks for tuning into the show, for sending in your question, and for offering to come on the show. I don't fancy myself as much of, a, uh, uh, of an interviewer, and as such, having others come on the show was not something I had planned on incorporating into the show anytime soon, but it definitely is not out of the question. If or when it does, I will keep your kind offer in mind. I've not had first-hand experience with blue mats, but I have looked into them as an option for automated irrigation. Before sharing what I do know about them, let me say that there are a couple of very good podcast episodes on the Cannabis Cultivation and Science podcast hosted by Tad Hussey, where he interviews a representative of Blue Mat. Uh, they are episodes 22 and 23 of that podcast and contain great info on the product and its setup. For those not aware, the Blue Mat system is an auto-drip irrigation system that does not work off of timers, but instead uses ceramic sensor sensors called carrots, because they look like carrots, uh, that use osmotic, uh, osmotic pressure to open and close a drip line based on the dryness or dampness of the media, and that ultimately keeps whatever medium is used in it's used in at an opt optimal moisture level set by the user, of course. If I understand correctly, it can have as many as 500 drip sites uh, or carrots, I think, and usually works only uh, usually works using only gravity a gravity fed system from an elevated reservoir, but there are ways to get it to work with a pressurized system by connecting the main to a tap or a pump. It is able to work in all types of media, but it has its most difficult time with rock wool, which is why it has not been a go for uh, a go-to system for me. I've also heard that it can be challenging to dial in the setup, especially the more sensors and drip sites you have, but I've also heard that once set up, it works like a dream. I feel it's most trouble-free in water-only setups, such as living soil, no-till systems, 
uh, super soil grows, etc., because much less chance there's a much less chance of drip lines getting clogged, as is the challenge with any top feed drip irrigation system. With that said, it will still work with synthetic nutrient fertigation. The user would just have to be more mindful of a high chance of block lines. Finally, I opted not to go the blue mat route because most importantly, it has trouble working well with Rockwell. I felt it potentially would give me issues due to me using synthetic nutrients in my hydroponic system. And although I could set up a pump system with it, this system shines best when used as gravity-fed irrigation, but raising my reservoirs was out of the question. Bottom line, great system. I've heard many great things, and I don't feel you would go wrong um, using it, at, you know, or, at, or go wrong at least giving it a try. So the last question I have here was a uh, question sent to the email, which is questions at germtojarpodcast.com and it was sent in by McBrat and it goes as follows was wondering if you could talk about feeding mother plants with regular nutrients not special mother plant nutrients for example I'm using general hydroponics flora series and would like to know the best way to formulate the newts to best feed them so the moms don't grow too fast, but are healthy to take cuttings from. If you could get specific, it would be great. I've posted this question on chat forums to no avail. Thanks, fellow Canadian McBrad. Thanks for the question, McBrad, and much love to you and all my other fellow Canadian listeners. I hope keeping, uh, sorry, I love keeping mother plants and preserving prized genetics if you're able to, meaning you know, things like space and plant count don't prohibit you. It's truly one of the benefits of growing photoperiods as it lets you work with genetics you know and are familiar with in regards to their morphology, phenotypical, and chemotype expressions. Not to mention healthy mothers provide an unlimited number of new plants for free via taking cuttings or or cloning. Minimal cost being the cost to keep the mothers and to propagate the clones. Keeping healthy mothers is not difficult, but to your question, proper nutrition is key, not only to healthy mothers, but for strong, quick rooting cuttings. Although any standard vegetative-based nutrient will keep them healthy, it requires different nutrient ratios to have mother stock that will provide you with great cuttings. You want a high carbon to nitrogen ratio, which will allow for greater carbohydrate storage, which which is important to quick rooting clones. To do this, simply lower the amount of nitrogen. You want the minimum necessary for steady, healthy veg growth. High nitrogen will promote accelerated soft and leggy growth with low carbohydrate storage, which is not ideal for cloning. If you find at any time that your mother mother plant is suffering from a slight nitrogen deficiency, you can always just go ahead and boost the nitrogen slightly for a fertigation or two. Another thing that will help to avoid a nitrogen deficiency would be to adjust your nutrient ratios to provide a one-to-one nitrogen to potassium ratio because excess potassium can magnify a nitrogen imbalance. 
lower EC of your uh, lower the EC of your fertigation to 0.8 to 1.0 millisiemens, which is 400 to 500 ppm on the 500 conversion scale um, for ppms. Uh, this this is cultivar dependent, so you want you will want to start low and raise gradually till you find the minimum EC required to keep your mother plants healthy with no deficiencies. You will also want to provide generous amounts of calcium, which will strengthen cell walls, allowing for more sugars and nitrogen uh, nutrients, sorry, to be stored. Thicker stems and cuttings less susceptible to disease. So it's advantageous that you're using uh, the General Hydroponics Flora Series as that's also currently the base nutrient line I'm using. I accomplished uh, all that I mentioned above by using week one flower inputs at 40 to 50% of the recommended dose. And that week one is based on their feed charts. If you really wanted, you could probably eliminate the grow input altogether, which would be like a modified Lucas formula fertigation almost. For everyone else listening who is not using the General Hydroponic Flora Series, unfortunately, I can't speak to the dosing with other nutrient lines, but you can use the info I provided as a way to adjust whatever nutrient line you're using to provide more targeted fertigation for your mother plants. So that's it for this week's listener Q&A. Thank you again for all the questions. I love here uh, receiving them. I love reading them. I especially appreciate being able to answer them. So don't stop. Keep sending them in. And I look forward to um, doing more of this in future episodes. Finally, let's jump into the main topic for this show and which is to continue on a deep dive into grow lighting. So I'll start by talking about something that's called the law of diminishing returns. As we dive deeper into grow lighting information, I want to caution everyone on something that applies to cannabis cultivation as a whole and not just lighting. And that is that with some things, Tiny and very marginal returns does not warrant the additional cost and or effect associated with new technologies, equipment, or gardening practices. That's not to deter you from buying, using, and trying the newest and greatest advancements or initial findings that seem to come out almost daily because research in this industry is just exploding. But some of the newest and greatest is not fully vetted or proven yet. And most times, particularly with home growers, perfecting the basics and foundation of any area of your grow is going to give you a far better return than trying to chase a minuscule 1% increase here and a barely perceptible improvement there. Marketing of any new tech or research finding is the culprit here sometimes because whether an improvement is 50% better or 1%, it's an improvement and they usually will not tell you how much improvement to expect, just that you can realize improvements. But does 1% warrant a large increase in expense, big change in your process, or additional time and effort in your grow or new equipment? That's for you to decide, but definitely something I feel is worth encouraging you to consider. With that said, 
let's continue uh, our series of grow lighting information. The range of light spectrum in the PAR range, 400 nanometers to 700 nanometers, is well known to be the spectrums of light used by plants for photosynthesis. But what about the light spectrums above or below this narrow band? These are the far red and ultraviolet spectrums respectively. Historically, it was thought that plants did not utilize these spectra for photosynthesis or growth, or at least it was not known what effects they had on plants, if at all. Although a lot more study needs to be done to quantify what we've learned about how plants use and react to light in these ranges, we now know for sure that they do in fact affect plants. UV or ultraviolet, specifically spectra in the UVA and UVB ranges have been shown to increase essential oil and cannabinoid levels in cannabis. As for plant growth, although it seems apparent that very small amounts of UVA can be used by cannabis plants for photosynthesis, with UVB wavelengths, the consensus more and more is that it is likely detrimental to plant growth if used in higher intensity throughout the veg and uh, throughout veg and early flower. It seems the best benefit, particularly with UVB, is to use UVB in late flower using uh, during the ripening stage to boost cannabinoid content. The hypothesis on why this happens is because the plants, the plants' defense mechanisms seem to be triggered when excessive UVB is present. And since cannabinoids are one of the major ways cannabis plants defend themselves, it makes sense that there would be an increase in its production when exposed to UVB. It also it is also due to this line of thinking that is that it's believed use in veg and early flower is not advantageous because you would be forcing the plant to defend itself from high amounts of UVB as opposed to focusing their resources to plant growth, plant and flower growth. Now let's look at far red light spectrums. Far red spectrum is in the range of 700 nanometers to 780 nanometers, which is above the PAR range. Full spectrum light supplemented with far red photons promotes uh, increases in leaf size and stem elongation in plants. The reason for this is because far red light, along with green light, penetrates through the leaves and canopies so when plants absorb higher ratios of far red to white light, or specifically far red to red, it panics because it believes it's in the shade and responds in ways that it feels will get it more light. In shade avoider plants, it elongates stems to reach more light, and in shade tolerator plants, it increases leaf size to absorb more light. This response is advantageous in leafy greens like lettuce or spinach, but not so much in plants like tomatoes or cannabis where long stems with increased node spacing is not desirable. It has been observed that far red used in the appropriate ratio to red light can be a flower initiator 
the phenomena known as the Emerson effect. Applied properly, it allows the cultivator to run longer lights on periods or, uh, or shorter dark periods while continuing to make the plant think it's getting 12 hours of dark. So far red can be utilized to promote certain types of plant growth. How, or more importantly, if this can be used as an advantage with cannabis is yet to be determined, but it definitely shows that light spectrum in the PAR range are not the only light spectrum used by plants and that can influence plant growth. We are still in the early stages of studying these UV and far red light spectra outside of the PAR range, but what I've shared here shows that we already, uh, we already know they impact plants much more than we believed, and future studies will hopefully tell us how or if we can use them to our benefit in cannabis, which situations they may be advantageous in, and when in the life cycle of cannabis should they be used, if at all. Should the studies of these spectrum outside of PAR become more definitive and shown to be beneficial, you will start to hear acronyms like PBAR, P-B as in Bob, A-R as in Raymond, which stands for Plant Biologically Active Radiation. PBAR, like PAR, is a range of spectrum, but a wider one that includes wavelengths from 280 to 800 nanometers. In my opinion, based on what we know right now, use of UV and far red is more supplemental in nature. If we do start to see it built into fixtures, then it would make sense that it would be controlled separately from all the other diodes within the PAR range. Plus, I would only expect to see it in the highest end fixtures due to providing only slight benefits at this time and because it really is in the realm of more advanced cultivation. For what it's worth, I would recommend newer and even experienced growers not to concern themselves over or concern themselves or overcomplicate their grows with these spectrum and technologies, at least not until we're shown proven quantified, quantifiable positive results. That wraps it up for this week's episode. I hope you were able to pull something useful from this show. I'm thrilled with the response to the show so far and hope it continues to grow in listenership and popularity. Make sure to like and review the show on your favorite podcast directory. If you want more from the Germ to Jar Cannabis Cultivation Podcast, follow the show's other online properties, Twitter at germ to jar PC, Instagram at germ to jar podcast, Facebook, the germ to jar cannabis cultivation podcast, and stay tuned for the upcoming launch of our website, www.germtojarpodcast.com. We definitely want to hear from you, so please reach out to us with your questions, comments, thoughts on the broadcast, suggestions, or just say hi by email, which is questions with an S at germtojarpodcast.com. Or if anything you've learned from the show has helped you and your garden, I would love to see posts about it on any of your social media platforms. And when you do, make sure to tag or hashtag germ to jar podcast can can grow and keep growing that fire so I can see it. 
I'm your host, AJ Tobian, and if you'd like to follow me, I am at CanCanGrow, that's C-A-N-C-A-N-N-G-R-O-W, on virtually all social media platforms, predominantly on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. Thank you for tuning in, and until next episode, keep growing that fire. Thank you.